1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrack, and today our celebrity guest is coming to us from Los Angeles, California. He's the award-winning television pioneer, maverick, and wonderkin producer, Arthur Smith. He's really a titan in the business. To mention a word from one of his famous shows that he produces, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Arthur Smith is the chairman of A. Smith and Company Productions. He's an industry veteran and a pioneer in nonfiction television, known for creating some of the longest-running unscripted series in history. Since founding A. Smith and Co. in 2000, with 200 plus shows for over 50 networks under Smith's leadership. A. Smith & Co.'s credits include the very popular Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen, which forged the modern food competition genre in the U.S. and is Fox's longest-running reality show, seven-time Emmy nominee American Ninja Warrior, which recently aired its 14th season on NBC, Flora's Lava, which hit Netflix' top 10 list, the multi-NAACP award-dominated documentary special Unsung, Welcome to Plathville, Profiled, The Black Man, American Gangster, Trap Queens, so goes on and on. Here's a great one. Dwayne The Rock Johnson's The Titan Games, Mental Samurai with Rob Lowe, Farrell Williams, Voices of Fire, America Ninja Warrior Jr., and NFL's Pro Ball, skills challenge. His list of credits is beyond impressive. Smith also serves as chairman of Tenopolis Group, U.S., the leading TV production and distribution group, which acquired A. Smith & Co. in 2011. In this role, Smith also oversees the unscripted powerhouse Magical Elves. The Emmy award-winning producer of uplifted unscripted series such as Top Chef and its many spin-offs, nailed it. Cold Justice, Brain Games on the Road, and more. Smith was honored as one of Variety's titans of unscripted TV in 2022, named one of The Hollywood Reporter's most powerful producers in unscripted TV in 2022, and inducted in the Real Screen Awards Hall of Fame in 2021. He even created great television during the pandemic. Who does that? He was awarded Broadcasting and Cable's Producer of the Year in 2020, nominated for several Emmy Awards, and received dozens of awards, including the NAACP Awards, Real Screen Awards, and Critics' Choice Awards. Smith was also the first ever inductee to his alma mater, Ryerson's Wall of Fame and was the founding sponsor of the Ryerson and LA Scholarship Program to create hands-on learning opportunities for Ryerson students. Prior to A. Smith and Co., Smith served as EVP of Programming, Production, and News at Fox Sports Net. That was a huge gig. Earlier in his career, he held senior roles with both MCA Universal Television Group and Dick Clark Productions, and was named the youngest ever head of CBC Sports in CBC's history. And I remember interviewing him at the time when he acquired that position at 28 years old, which was really unprecedented. That was well over 30 years ago. I'm not giving you the exact year. Let's leave it at that. And many more exciting things have happened since then. He is legendary in this business. So without further ado, Arthur is here today to talk about his new book, Reach, Hard Lessons and Learn Truths. From a lifetime in television, Arthur Smith, longest bio ever.
0: Welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Oh, I'm exhausted. Uh, <laughs> you're exhausted from reading it. Thank you, Judy. So, so nice to see you again after all this time. Judy wrote this great article about me and <laughs> in the beginning of my career uh, for TO Magazine, right? That's and, right. And uh, right. it was funny when, when we communicated, I went back and I found the article. I said, oh, yeah, I remember, I, you know, brought me back to that time. Yes. So it's, it's good to see you, old friend. I'm glad we're uh, getting to talk today. I'm so
1: happy and so delighted to have you here. I love, Arthur, that you called your book Reach, Hard Lessons and Learn Truths from a Lifetime in Television, something you've really done your entire life. And I think a lot of this began at nine years old when you moved to a new neighborhood in Montreal called Hampstead. You were the new kid on the block and you became part of a hockey team there. And during your first game at this outdoor rink in Montreal, you'd always played defense before the coach looked at you and said, we could use you in center position. You just sort of played it cool at first, stayed in neutral as you write. And then in your second game with the team, You had one of your first reaches and you scored. And as you write in the book, you were caught in a swirl of backslaps and congratulations from your new teammates. And as you write, it was exhilarating to be so suddenly accepted and validated on the back of this one play. How has that confidence followed you and shaped you in so many aspects of your life?
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. It's funny how that one moment when I was nine years old really changed the course of my life. And when I think about kids, I think about raising my kids and how those critical moments when you're young impact you forever. You know, I was a very very shy kid growing up, extremely shy. Hard to believe when I tell people (laughs) that. You know, considering how the outgoing person that I became. But prior to that moment. You know, I was, like I said, very shy and it, it kind of brought me out. And uh, that reach was kind of forced because they, ah, I was the new kid. They needed someone to play center. They put me at center and then magic happened and it brought me confidence. And the funny thing about, you know, when you gain confidence at a certain moment, sometimes it creates this positive momentum. And I think that's what happened to me. And when you're nine years old, you don't realize what's happening in your subconscious. It was only when I look back. And I really trace every step from where I am today to all the all the moments that have happened along the way, you know, including my early break at CBC, including you know being in a movie. <laughs> in the first movie, I, di- I I used to be an actor. But the first movie I auditioned for, I got a part. All these things I, I trace back to that one moment. That's amazing. And uh, I- yes.
1: No, I was going to say that confidence you parlayed into many sports, not just hockey. And also, as you say, into your first acting gig at summer camp when you played Kaniki in Greece. Oh. And what was that like the first time you got on stage? You had been a shy kid. You were yeah. becoming a star in sports. But like now you're standing on a stage. What was that like for you?
0: Well, the, the, the feeling was very similar to what I, I mean. I love sports. You know, I developed this love of sports and was good at it. So, you know, from that moment on, you know, I say in the book, like, you know, not only did I move from defense to center, but I moved to center like being the person who wants to be the person who has the ball, the puck, the last moment, who wants <laughs> to be relied upon. And that's why acting felt so natural to me, and that's why I started trying out for things and getting these parts and things like that, and it felt very comfortable. And for the, you know, for the longest time when I first moved from Montreal to Toronto, I really thought acting was going to be my career because I had, in the summer before I went to college, I, you know, I tried out for a film. I actually went out to be an extra for a film. The story's covered in the book, so I won't take you through it. Read the book. But anyhow, <laughs> um, but I went out to be an extra because I thought they were shooting a movie, and I got pulled out of line, as luck would have it, and ended up reading for a part and ended up getting a part in a movie. Never ne- never been in a movie before, never been an extra in a movie before, and here I was. And, I, and that led to another movie, and that led to... Me thinking maybe acting is my jam, but the thing was is that prior to applying to Ryerson now Toronto Metropolitan University TMU, I decided that I didn't want to go to acting school and uh, I wanted to learn something a little more practical. And um, so I went into you know TV and film at Ryerson, and I'm going to keep calling it Ryerson because it's so stuck in my brain. I know it's hard. But <laughs> anyhow, and but all that time I really thought. I was going to continue acting, and then when I moved to Toronto, I was I was doing sitcoms with the CBC. I did a show called Hanging In for the CBC, a show called Flappers. I was in a television commercial for Canada's Wonderland. But what I didn't realize what was happening is that my my focus started to change, and I really started to really love producing and directing. and And then I realized that was more me. There's still a, there's still an actor inside of me, uh, yes. which comes out every so often. I still find a way to use that training or that part of my personality. When I'm selling shows, pitching shows, dealing yes. with talent, and I still do, you know, some voiceover work during the course of the the year, I still do a lot of voiceover work on a variety of things. So, but uh, producing, producing is, is what I was meant to do. And that's, that's where I found myself, you know? It's your passion.
1: It's interesting because at the beginning of your life and career, you always had these three passions, acting, television, and sports, Mm -hmm. all of which ironically have come together. But so, and and as mentioned, you were in Hanging In, Flappers, your big break, of course, was in Pinball Summer, where you played that John Travolta type (laughs) character, like in Saturday Night Fever. And you even did Summer Stock, playing a lead in Death Trap. You got a great review from a theater critic in the Montreal Gazette. But ultimately, you came back to your mother, your beloved mother, Goldie's refrain, after every good thing she would say to you, there is more for you, Arthur. And you kept reaching. And that summer stock show was your last performance as an actor before radio television school, Ryerson. And we're going to get into all the exciting things that happened and where you landed up before you even graduated, which was unheard of, unprecedented. But I just want to go back to your parents a minute, because one thing I've noticed, Arthur, with every celebrity or a very successful person there's often a happy childhood in the background happening and you certainly had that with your father Saul your mother Goldie and I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your mom who thought of you as a favorite son it's sort of a joke but it was my Arthur and yeah. what a relationship and the same with your dad beyond you even yes. named your company a similar name
0: yeah right? yeah well yeah No, know when I just got the chills, as you were talking about my parents, because they're, they were special and I was very fortunate. And, uh, you know, when I talk about reaching, you know, I believe in the power of reach and and this, that you only realize your full potential unless you extend yourself beyond what you think you can do. sure And it's much easier to reach when you're reaching from a strong foundation. And that foundation was my parents. And, you know, they encouraged me, they supported me, They believed in me. And if you make a child feel special, then they start to think that they are (laughs) or that they might be. And uh, believe me, my parents brought me down to earth many times, made sure my head was not exploding, (laughs) especially during those acting days when I was getting parts and things like that. But, yeah, there was such a force. And my, my mom, you know, I call her the coach because she was the one who really managed, kind of managed my emotions during you know, uh, you know, during all my ambitious times, she was, she was, you know, encouraging and she was there for me. And, you know, she was the one I bounced off of. My dad was my role model. My dad was like, whatever I did was fine with him, but he was my role model. He is the person he's, you know, he is, he is the greatest man I will ever know. There is nobody like my dad. And yeah, he was, and the thing I learned most about from my father, which I'm not as good at, I want to be, I strive to be is gratitude. And I say that, you know, my dad and I could be sitting in a deli and we could be each having a sandwich and it'd be the exact same sandwich, but somehow (laughs) his sandwich tasted a lot better than mine. And it was just because he was just so, he was so appreciative of everything that, that he had and, you know, always cheerful, always telling a joke. And they were, they were an interesting combination because I'm, I think I'm part, like my mother was Actually, the more ambitious one, but you know, it was a different time, and you know, she lived a lot of her ambition through me. Not that my dad wasn't ambitious, but he was more—he was more content with everything that happened in his life. Although he was very a very successful businessman, he was—you know—it was all in the—you know—the pursuit of providing for his family. Yes. So, I mean, I mean, like amazing parents. Now, you know, when I talk about, I was fortunate to have great parents, and and uh, that foundation, you know, created this security that allowed me to jump off from that but you know not everyone's blessed with that but that doesn't mean they're doomed from the start a foundation can be built in other ways so whether it's friendships whether it's siblings what you know whether it's whatever relationships and you know you can you can build that support structure but it's yes. you know if you're on unstable ground it's so much harder to to put yourself out there so mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. i was gifted with great parents
1: And I think you reciprocated in a big way and we'll get to it because I don't want to jump ahead of everything, but some fabulous stories of some wonderful things that you did for your dad season tickets, which are almost impossible to get at the Montreal Canadiens hockey games and many other things that we'll we'll get to. But it's pretty incredible. So let's go to here you are. You're 22 years old and you're about to graduate from Ryerson. And many of your colleagues or your fellow students are applying for jobs as pink collar workers everywhere and applying to 20 different positions. And you had this sort of motto, this idea that you'd rather just apply to one or two that you really wanted. And your dream, what you set your sights on was to be working as a producer at CBC Sports. Now, everybody thinks about that, but who gets that? That's not an entry-level position. And in fact, there was a position floating around that was offered to you for $12,500, I believe, at a radio station yeah. uh, that, that was offered to you. But you were holding out and you showed up at this guy's office, Jim Thompson, mm-hmm. who was the executive producer, I believe, of Sports Weekend on CBC. And you asked if you could meet him. And I think the secretary kind of looks at you like, what? Like, he's, he's a busy guy. He's in the meeting for you know hours. And you said, I'll wait. And you charmed her. And he came out. And you shook his hand and you said, my name is Arthur Smith. I was first in my graduating class. Can I have 10 minutes of your time? And he said, I'll give you five. Mm -hmm. And you emerged an hour and a half later. What are Mm -hmm. your memories of that meeting at 22 years old, just short of graduating? They hadn't even graduated yet. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about that day?
0: Well, the the interesting thing is that, you know, the program that I'm on right now, Finding Your Bliss, well, (laughs) at that time, ignorance was my bliss because, you know, that because I didn't know how things worked. But I knew I wanted to work there. And so I did what I thought would make sense. I waited to see the guy who, who I had some connection with. That the connection was that he went to Ryerson 25 years before me. So that was the one thing that I knew about hmm. him. And I knew he was an important guy at CBC Sports. So I was determined to get in and see him. And so I just waited and waited and waited. And he was gracious enough to give me you know five minutes, which turned out to be 90 minutes, And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy because like I said, I just, I just went for it. And this is part of the, you know, this is part of the reach philosophy. You just go for it. Sometimes, like I said, if I had, you know, known more about the business, I probably wouldn't have done it this way. And so that's why ignorance is is bliss (laughs) definitely in this situation. And we, we started to talk and, you know, I talked about what I thought about CBC Sports and being very opinionated. And then at, at, at a certain point, he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to be a producer. And he said, that's very nice. And, and um, you know, that's a good aspiration. And I said, no, it's not an aspiration. I'm ready to do it now. And he laughed. And I wasn't kidding. But I didn't know any better. I just told him what I wanted. And then he, ex- he began to explain to me the process of how one becomes a producer. And, um, you know, he talked to me about working in local news. And then as a production assistant, then gradually maybe getting to national news and then, you know, maybe getting to sports as a production assistant. And and he says, if you're if if you on a fast track, that'll take about five years. And I said, well, that's not going to work. And because uh, <laughs> I, I was ignorant. So I didn't know. So I he said, I'm ready now. And anyhow, he laughed. And then he said, it was really nice meeting you. And I wish you well. And honestly, I thought that was the end of it. And then a few weeks later, uh, I got a phone call to come back to Toronto to meet his boss and uh, a number of other CBC executives, which led to me getting hired eventually. Well,
1: that's a great story. So you're in the hot seat with six CBC executives sitting at a long table, if you can picture it, and they're firing questions at you like a firing squad. And you got that life-changing call from Dennis Harvey when you were in Montreal, as you write in the book. And you had just driven five hours when you got that call and picked it up on your answering machine and literally had to turn around and go back. And you did something fascinating that also has to do with this show in that car ride, that five hours, which is the 401, which is not the most exciting scenery. And you manifested, you visualized, you planned, you thought about what you were going to talk about, what you were going to do, ideas you had, what's working, what's not working, what's going to be good. And now you're sitting there. And I even remember you mentioning once that on your resume, you had in bold letters, knowing thy competition. Mm. Is that correct? Wow, yeah. And knowing what's happening on ABC, CBS, NBC, and Mm -hmm. TSN, and I can do it better for you guys. So there you are in the meeting with these six middle-aged guys. You're 20, you're a kid, and you're on the hot seat. Mm -hmm. Most people would be sweating bullets, Mm -hmm. but you are as cool as a cucumber. Can you explain how you're able to do that? How you're able to be so calm about it and what happened?
0: Well, yeah I was more or less calm, but uh, no th- thank you for that. you know the one thing about you know reaching it's not just about extending yourself obviously that you know you can't just you can't just visualize something and make it so you have to prepare you have to be organized you have to do the work and you know you, you referred to it earlier about I don't believe in applying to 20 places I believe in narrowing the target. I think you have a better chance of hitting the target if you just have one or two targets to hit mm-hmm. as opposed to 20. so I really focused on CBC scores so in that drive. Back from Toronto, um, from Montreal, back to Toronto after I just arrived in Montreal, you know, I had the time to really think, and my thought process was: um, How do I stand out? And how do I get them to pay attention to me? And how do I express all the passion that I have? And you know, lots of people say they have good ideas. I'm going to show them my good ideas for good or for bad. I'm putting myself out there, and I wrote this um, kind of this white paper. Basically, it was about ten pages on what. CBC Sports needed to do what was working, what wasn't working. Kind of ballsy, once again, a little ignorant on how things work. But hey, <laughs> and there was a, there was a certain point in the meeting that I decided to unveil this white paper, and I started handing out the papers. And it was the, the look on the faces were amazing because they were all kind of shocked, like, "What is he doing?" <laughs> and um, <laughs> and then he proceeded to talk talk about a lot of this stuff. The interest, the interesting thing, just because we're talking about that moment, is I just have to fast forward for a second ahead to when I became head of CBC Sports, because six and a half years later, I became head of CBC Sports, and most of the people who were in that room ended up working for me, which is crazy, crazy crazy. when I even think about it now, like really crazy. But the other, I had this magical moment when I was, my first night as head of CBC Sports, I'm sitting in the corner office and I found my file, you know, those human resources file where they review you. And all through the years, what, yeah. what was said about me and stuff <laughs> like that. I had access to my own file because I was head of the sports team. And I found the papers that I handed out in that meeting. It was still in the file. Those those ideas that I wrote as a 22-year-old. And I found them. And it was kind of funny because I looked at some of them and I said, man, these are really bad. And some of them are actually good. Some of them we actually did. Some of them we actually ended up doing. Some of them were complete crap. But nonetheless. <laughs> Somebody felt it was important that 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 initial document, which I wrote as a Ryerson student, was still in the file when I was head at CBC Sports. It was kind of cool. It was a cool moment for me. That's so that's so awesome.
1: I have to just interject here to say that the book is also very funny, everyone. And I <laughs> laughed out loud so many times. I'm laughing here with Arthur, but there's just so many funny lines. I don't know, like that just catch you unawares in the book. So it's actually not only a phenomenal read and fascinating stuff, really, I think it should be read by every TV, radio, journalism, film student, and certainly, you know, by anyone interested in sports or entertainment and just the average person but it's actually very funny. So I, I wanted to mention that. So let's jump to that. You're 28 years old now. So you, you've, you've been the ISO director at Hockey Night in Canada. Like, how cool is that? You've done all these amazing things that people only dream of. And now they come to you and they ask you to do this gig at 20 years old. And this was around the time that I interviewed you. Everyone was calling you Wonder Boy, Wonderkin, because who at 28 is the head of CBC Sports like Dennis Harvey? Like, it's it's really unheard of. And so this is what happened. Can you tell us what led to that unbelievable coup in your career and what it felt like for you at 28 years old? Because I think there were some daunting moments at the beginning, right? You're like, okay, I've got the office. I've got the title. Now what? Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to find out what it was like to become the head of CBC sports at 28 years old. Be right back with Wonderkin TV producer, Arthur Smith. Back in a moment. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And just before the break, I was asking TV producer Arthur Smith what it was like to run a whole sports network at the age of 28.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, producing, you know, is was definitely my calling. And I knew it when I was producing, even at CBC Sports. I knew that that's what I was meant to do. So, you know, when Denny Harvey and Ivan Fitzand at the time, who was head of programming at the network, had come to me, I was I was in shock. First of all, yes, I was like the leading producer at the time at CBC. I was the executive producer at CBC Sports, and you know, I was uh, I had just done the, uh, the the Calgary Olympics, and I was about to do Seoul, the Seoul Olympics, and yes. and so I was a bit in shock, and I and I like I, I I didn't even know how to. Of course, I was flattered, but I didn't know if it was right for me because it's. Producing I knew, you know, producing I know, or at least I thought I knew. And this was, it was a whole different bunch of skills, like negotiating contracts and, and marketing and ad sales and a whole bunch of other areas that, you know, wasn't really my focus. And Denny and Yvonne said, they said to me, you know, we're not, we're not concerned. You're going to learn everything. You're smart. You'll figure it out. And we're here for you. And we think you're the right person to take over this thing. So it is, you know, there is something wonderful about, starting at a place. And then, you know, you know, that thing that I, I'm sure it's a, a relatable thing where you go, I wish I was the boss one day. Well, <laughs> it actually yeah. happened. And it <laughs> happened. And, and I, yeah, so I was kind of in shock. But I thought about, I didn't say yes, right away, I had to, I really had to digest it. And normally, when somebody puts something like a challenge in front of me, I always go, sure. Yeah, let's go. This one I actually had to think about not too long, but for a day, and, and I came back to them and I said, yeah, I really want it. And not only do I want it, here's what I think I would do. I actually came back with a whole, one of my white papers on what <laughs> I would do. So, and then they said, great. And, you know, I got, I, you know, I got the gig, but they said, we want you to do the Seoul Olympics next. And, yes. um, and then, and then when you return from Seoul, then you'll take over the department, which yes. is, which is what happened. And you did do the Seoul Olympics. And
1: then Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, you stood on stage after the Olympic Games winning two prestigious Gemini Awards, which everyone is the Canadian version of the Emmy Award. You won one Gemini for Best Sports Event for your overall coverage and one for Best News Coverage for Ben Test Positive. What was it like even for you just standing on that stage winning Gemini Awards, like as a young guy? Uh,
0: You know, it it was amazing. You know, it's amazing. I mean, I look back on those memories. They're such... Cherished memories that I had uh, at CBC. And, you know, I'm still such a Canadian, <laughs> always will be a Canadian at heart. And, you know, even talking to you today, knowing that you're calling me from Toronto, um, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm still so very precious about my, my connection to Canada. And that's why I, I love to give back and support young people at, at TMU now and, you know, with different programs and, and bringing them out to LA once a year for this RTA in LA program. And so, uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. I listen, I that Olympics because of what happened, what unfolded with Ben Johnson and and everything else that happened at that Olympics was definitely even when I look back at my entire career, it's still one of the mm. highlights of my career mm. because of all that transpired. And uh, I was very honored. I was very honored. But you know, winning the best sports coverage, I had a really good feeling about it. But when we won best news coverage, that that was you know, something I never thought of, but the fact, you know, we told the story and broke the story of how, what happened with Ben Johnson testing positive and, you know, our great Canadian hero testing positive, uh, um, and, and, and the story that followed. And so winning that news award was a little extra special because it wasn't, You know, I was there producing a sporting event. Little did I think I'd be even nominated because it wouldn't make sense that one would be a sports show would be nominated in the news category.
1: Yes, yes. Must have been a dichotomy for you being a sports fan Mm -hmm. to, first of all, be on the highest of highs, Mm -hmm. watching him win the gold and then seeing him stripped of his title. So as a producer and as a sports fan, that must have been quite the dichotomy. But I remember reading in the book that Yvonne Fitzsand and Dennis Harvey sent a fax that your wife Wendy sent to you that said, on Friday, it was the best of times. Last night was the worst of times, but through it all, you guys were magnificent. Wow, doesn't get any better than your, you know, the big shot saying that about you, right?
0: Yeah, I still have that fax. I saved (laughs) this. That's a good one to keep. There were were times, especially in the aftermath, when we found out and we kind of stopped covering the Olympics. And, you know, there was a lot of questioning within our ranks about what I decided to do. And even some people I highly respected and people who were mentors for me earlier in my time at CBC had come to me and said, Arthur, you've got to get back to covering the games. And I... I was just so convinced that this story was the story that had to be told to Canada and, and, and the games would have to wait, would have Mm -hmm. to wait. We would get back and we would do it. But I, but I, you know, it, 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 I just trusted my gut on that. And the, the ironic thing about it is that, you know, the night that Ben won the medal was the highest Mm -hmm. rating, highest rated night in Canadian television history. The night that he lost the medal was the ratings were even higher. And so, uh, which was kind of crazy. So, not by a lot, but it's it just the fact that they were even on par with each other. So, we knew that's what Canadians wanted to see. And it was exhausting. It was exhausting. Oh, and you say
1: you slept when it was over. Because I remember you once telling me that before the Olympics, various Olympics that you covered, or the Commonwealth Games in Aspen, Colorado, if I'm not mistaken, that you would work out for two weeks. You would get yourself into the best possible shape because mm. you knew that it was going to be four hours sleep a night and you had to be at your absolute best to prevent the cold rather than cure it. Yes?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, I, uh, I, I'm a big uh, workout kind of person. I, I was up at 5.30 this morning working out. I work out every day. And <laughs> honestly, I need the stamina for, for what <laughs> I do now and what I've done. It's just part of part of my routine when you're doing an Olympics or something like that, you know, you really don't have time to work out. There's no, there's no time in that day. So you've got to, you got to go in there in pretty good shape. At least I, I needed that. And, and in Seoul, I was sleeping two to three hours a night. I wish I got, I wish I got four. I never got four. And during the Ben, during the Ben Johnson from, you know, it, he won the medal and three days later, the medal was taken away. You know, the night that, that the, or the day that the medal was taken away or when I, when the story broke was in the middle of the night, I got the call. So I was, up for like 33 or 34 hours straight, mm. and uh, I eventually passed out in the control room <laughs> uh, like, the, like the following day. So, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't recommend that, but it was just it was, just an, un, it was an unusual 72 hours, and wow. you know, I uh, yeah, it was it was Crazy. uh, Crazy. it was exciting and challenging, and you're right, I mean, as a Canadian and as a sports fan, I was so thrilled that you know, when Ben won the uh, you know. He set the world record, and he beat Carl Lewis, and we had all this huge buildup coming into the game. So I was completely thrilled that that had happened. I remember our control room was erupted, like because we were all <laughs> reacting as Canadian Canadians, and I literally had to say, "Guys, you know, keep it down," because we're doing a show. We're all doing a live show. But I couldn't. I, I, I was yelling out directions, and people couldn't hear me because everybody was yelling so loud because they were so excited. And um, and that was replaced three days later by the most gloomiest saddest tears in people's eyes when we have to break the story. Here we're break delivering the, the news to the nation and, you know, the nation was going to be hurt by it, but we were just doing our job. So it was yeah. crazy. Brian
1: Mulrooney even called you. It's in the books. So I'm not going to tell you the whole story now, but he yeah. even called you when you're in the control. room, asking to speak to Ben, a very funny story mm-hmm. in the book. You got to read it to find out what that is a couple of years later. So all this is happening. There's this whirlwind going on and you got married and it's so interesting that you're a sports guy, but you're surrounded by women, your two sisters, your wife, Wendy, your two daughters. What's it like living in a house of women? And can you say more about how Wendy was your biggest reach that, as you write, yielded life's greatest blessings?
0: Well, it was amazing. I mean, I, my, my, my two sisters, who I still speak to every day, mm. and my two daughters, who are both in the entertainment business, one of which is downstairs right now, who she works in development. The other one is in post on a, she's a supervising producer on a show. So they're both in the, they're both in the, in the business. Well, they kind of grew up on sets and somehow it kind of, they saw how much I was joy, enjoying it, I guess, and decided to go into it. Not right away, because I didn't tell them, I let them choose their own path. It just ended up in it, so, but it's great that they are, it's fun. But um, I, I love having the women in my, the women in my life are, you know, as, as you could probably, I don't know if you remember, but or saw or noticed, but the dedication and you know, of course, I dedicate the book to my parents. But yes. the the other people I dedicated are, are to the five women in my life: my yes. my wife, uh, my two sisters, and my two daughters. Because Beautiful. they're you know critical; they're my support. And by the way, they they they're also a great focus group. I just I just love bouncing <laughs> things off of them. You know, it's funny because none of these five women are huge sports fans, um, right? And I you know. Fox Sports I, you know Ran Fox Sports I had a programming production there and CBC Sports and but you know when I was every time I produced something I always thought about how I could reach out to them how I could connect to them and so when I was producing sports I was always thinking about my mom and my sisters and my daughters and it it affected the way I produce shows because my style is always about television that makes you feel something Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so in my sports, and that's why I gravitated to doing Olympics and things like that, that I wanted to get you vested in the character. I want you to get rooted. I wanted you to feel something. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that led to American Ninja Warrior. There's no, there's no logical reason why an <laughs> obstacle course show should be on primetime and on NBC. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But we created this obstacle course that's kind of a metaphor for life. And then we tell the stories of the people and why they're running it, and it's a whole, which broadens it up. And it's funny because when I think back on, like, especially my daughters, they're not huge sports fans. One's a little bit more than the other, but they love sports movies. And mm-hmm. what is it about those sports movies? Well, it's, they're aspirational, they're emotional, they're, you know, they, they're just great, they're great uh, success stories or interesting yes. success stories, full of drama, ups and downs and things like that. Sports is a great reality show. That's so, true. um I'm completely off topic. I can't even remember what your question. is. I'm, sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm talking about the women in my life. Yes, the women. The women yes, have been good. yes, yes. No, the I, women. are yeah, like I said, they're they're my everything. What can I tell you?
1: It's the best. It's the best thing. I. It is. It is everything. You're so right. So now you've done all of this. You're still a young guy, and then Dick Clark Productions happen, and you become a VP there. And I love that your mom came hmm. to that interview with you in California. That made me cry, actually, waiting in a building nearby. What were your memories of that day? Can you take us back to that pivotal meeting in your life?
0: Well, you know, it was interesting. In, in 1984 was the first time I was ever in Los Angeles, and I produced the LA Olympics. That was the first Olympics that I had done. And I remember calling my parents and saying, I'm so happy here. Mm-hmm. And, the, and I was my first time in LA. And, I, you know, being a, an aspiring producer, getting to it, just being in LA... And working there during the '84 Olympics, and I, I said to my parents, I said, "Someday I'll be back." And they go, "What do you, what do you mean, like to visit?" <laughs> no, I go, "I mean, I don't know, but I feel like I'm going to end up here someday." And they go, you're, "Is there something you're not telling us?" And I go, "No, I just, <laughs> I just have this, I just have this feeling that yeah. somehow I'm going to end up here." And so when I ended up going for my interview with Dick Clark, it was, it was very surreal, obviously, and and I grew up watching Dick Clark like. A lot of people. <laughs> and I always admired him because he was so natural on television and he was also an entrepreneur. And I knew his story about how he built his company and everything else like that. And just like CBC was my target way back when, Dick Clark was my target when I decided that I wanted to do other things besides sports. And I looked at his company and I looked at him. And I didn't, you know, the story of how I got the interview with Dick Clark is I wrote a letter to him. <laughs> and and uh, it, was, it was a long letter. And I wrote it when I was in France on a survey for the Alberville Olympics, and I just got up in the middle and I couldn't sleep, and I had been thinking about him, and I wrote wrote him this letter, and then I got a letter back saying, "Come down to LA and meet me." And so it's funny because Dick Dick told me that it was the uh, the best letter he had ever received, uh, which was quite the compliment, and and he just had to meet me based on that letter. So it was, yeah. And and Dick and I uh, we hit it off, and he he clearly liked Danny Harvey him and Denny Harvey are probably of the biggest mentors in my life mm-hmm. and uh, wow. and Dick, Dick and I stayed friends long after I left the company and we found ways to work together and talk and up until he, he passed away and yeah, he was special. And I, and I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about wow. running a company. So much of what my company is today, there are similarities to, it, to the way Dick had run his company. Wow.
1: You also had a very exciting chapter at Fox Sports, which you revolutionized and put on the map, starting 22 affiliate stations. Can you tell us also about that chapter, which I think just broke everything wide open?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, it was kind of interesting. I I never thought of, when I moved to LA, I never thought I'd work in sports again. And nor did I ever think I'd want to work back in sports again, because I had such a good run at CBC Sports with the three Olympics and all the other stuff being head of sports that I was content with not doing sports again. Mm-hmm. Although with Dick Clark, I did a sports award show. I did. I created a golf event. There were sports related. I mean, I just didn't think I was ever going to end up at a sports network or a sports uh, division. You yes. Are. So, And I met with David Hill, who was the chairman. And he goes, no, 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 we're about to change. And we're about to really go after sports in an aggressive way. And then I said, well, what do you think I would do? And he said, well, we want you to be head of programming and head of production and head of news and basically everything that was on the air. And I said to him, I said, you know, that sounds amazing. But I, I know this is going to sound really weird, but <laughs> it's really important to me that I have that I'm involved in production. I said I need yes. to be executive producer of something, and he yes. goes, "It's your network." He says, "You'll figure it out. If there's certain things that you want to do, then you should you should do them, but just remember your That's overall right. responsibility." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> but eventually, they did offer the job to me, and then I I wow. had to get out of a Universal contract, which wasn't so easy. But eventually, they let me out, and then I had this great run at Fox Sports which was my last job before setting up uh, a Smith and co. And it, it was, it was amazing.
1: I just want to say, I just want to go back because there's something I didn't mention that is so important that I want to share with our listeners, which is the Marlon Brandon story huh. that back at C I couldn't even believe this when I was reading it. I thought, is this a joke? Like, is this real? That you, Marlon Brando got in touch with you and said, can I watch this important game with you? And can I come to your office at the CBC and watch with you? Yvonne mm-hmm. Fitzsand heard about this and said, no, 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 let's move the whole thing to my office. So I don't know. I can have craft services or whatever. I could have a proper spread and wine and whatever. And he was supposed to show up at nine PM and nothing and you're there like that i think was a day that you might have sweat a little bit but he did end up showing up marlon brando you tell us about that because that was crazy we're going to find out what happened the night that marlon brando wanted to watch the game with arthur smith at cbc sports right after this short break back in a moment We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM seven forty. I'm here with Arthur Smith. Arthur, can you tell us what happened that night with the legendary Marlon Brando?
0: It was completely crazy, and I thought, you know, when he was supposed to show up at nine o'clock, it was for the it was for a Mike Tyson fight. He was a big fight fan, and, and I at CBC had gotten the rights to to a Mike Tyson fight, and we were we were showing the show on a delay, so we were taking in the feed live that night. Anyhow, so I had told I had mentioned it can, mentioned it. To Ivan, and Ivan said, "As as you correctly pointed out, he said, let 'Let's do it in my office.'" And I said, "Okay." So anyhow, just to um, keep it short, because it's a crazy story that I think it'll be interesting for readers to see in the book. But uh, yeah, there was there was these two hours where, <laughs> oh, when, like, I was waiting for him to show, but the Tyson fight hadn't started. But he told me he's going to be there at nine. And my boss Yvonne, was looking at me like I, I had just been set up, that I had just been yeah. pranked. Thankfully. Uh, Matthew Broderick showed up at 11, and he brought up, uh, Matthew Broderick. I said Matthew Broderick. Did I say Matthew Broderick? Yes. yes. <laughs> Matthew, Broderick showed up with- Matthew Broderick showed up with Marlon Brando. Oh, and my Penel- God. And Penelope Ann Miller and Bruno Kirby and the cast of The Freshman, which was uh, a movie that was being shot in Toronto at the time. So not only did Marlon Brando show up, Matthew Broderick showed up, Bruno Kirby, Penelope Ann Miller, and the producer and director, uh, Lobel and Bergman, their producing directing team, and it was an insane night. You gotta, you gotta check out the book to to, to, to hear about uh, that. To hear about it. I know it's so funny. It, it's so funny. Like as we're talking about these names, sometimes I like I think about you know from Marlon Brando to Dwayne Johnson to Gretzky to Magic to Bird to Little Richard Dick Clark. I mean. It's kind of like a Gump like this. David Foster,
1: you had you had me a David Foster. I mean, all all of them. Simon Cowell. Oh, I'm not going to share the Simon Cowell story, even though I'm dying to tell that story because I. Okay, I just have to say this one part. You have to read the book, but there is this cool thing that you did. You're involved with Celebrity Duet, Simon Cowell. He'd already yeah. become famous for American Idol, and you're doing this thing. And he hadn't seen the opening, the opening, the bumper, the montage to, to the show. You didn't want him to see it and get all worried about it the day before. But anyway, someone said, you got to show it to him. And he wasn't loving it. And what what he was not loving was he said he didn't feel it. He wasn't feeling it. And then you magically turned around a day before the show. I don't know what you did, but you made him love it. So just very briefly, what did you do? You have to read the story in the book, guys, but the book reached. But what did you do to turn Simon Cowell around?
0: Yeah, there was I just, you know, rewrote the script a little bit, re energized it. It was hard because when someone says they don't like it and they're not feeling it, those are po- like those are the two worst notes you could possibly get. <laughs> so I had to try and interpret what he what he wanted at the time, but you know, Simon was was clearly the biggest star on the Fox network with American Idol, and in in, in his own way, he was reaching for his next goal, which was right. being a an outstanding producer. And so, you know, there was a lot on the line for him too. However, the notes, you know, I had to I had to work it, but it, it all turned out okay. Yeah, yeah. As Judy said, you should read the story and how it unfolded. I have to
1: read. You have to read it, but it's a great one. Yeah. I, I have to. Okay. And I know we're running out of time and there's so much more, but I'm just going to say one of your biggest reaches was the and the, with the biggest yields was when you left Fox and started your own company. I just want to say that A. Smith and, and company and co. But what I want to say was so cool about you is that you were ethical and you did it in a great way because they wanted you to stay longer and you did. And that actually elicited you getting 60 episodes of your first show. You got to see this. You had a gig yeah. and, a, and a show before you even moved into the building. In yeah. Santa Monica. So, how cool is that? Just briefly, what has it been like to have your own company and be making hit shows like Hell's Kitchen, that's been running for a million years, American Ninja Warrior, now the Titan Show, on and on. Just briefly, what what is it like having your own? What's the word called? Shingle on the door and doing the and being your own guy. Like wow.
0: Well, it, it fits like a glove for me. You know, it kind of feels like the place I should be. You know, it's funny because. The company is now 23 years, which is the longest job I've ever had by far. It certainly doesn't feel like that when I think about you know CBC and and Dick Clark and Universal and Fox. They all kind of feel like this almost the same length of time, including A Smith and Co. But A Smith and Co. is much longer than any of the other ones. So that gives you an idea of how I feel about it. It's 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 been great and. Really, all the things that, that I had done before starting my company prepared me for starting my company. So running a sports division, being a producer, running a network, being, uh, being at a studio, all those things you know, were, were great training to set me up to, be, to running my own production company. And you know, But I really didn't have much of a strategy. A strategy. I just knew that I, that's what I was meant to do. That was the work I wanted to do. And Because I liked everything, and you could tell by my background, I was in sports, I was entertainment, I was doing award shows, variety, comedy, all that, all the stuff that I kind of loved everything. I really did. And so, having my own company allows me to do some very different, wide, you know, big, wide variety of programming. So, Hell's Kitchen that we do on Fox is very different than American Ninja Warrior, which is very different than the doc documentary series on Sun, which is very different than. The TLC show, Welcome to Plathville, which is a docu soap, and so like you know, we've done game shows, we've done music shows, talk shows, and I love it all. You know, everything is in the nonfiction space because that's my that's my jam. I, I love I love nonfiction, and um, I hesitate to even call it reality television, which I talk about in the book because yes. reality, it, to me, is is a much narrower definition of what we do. We do everything in the in the nonfiction space, so. Um, you, you even, yeah, you even
1: almost, you even almost created this genre because one of your first shows was The Swan, which was the first of its kind, highest-rated right. makeover show of the season, outperforming reality shows everywhere. And you're going to have to read the book because we don't have time to talk about that. But there's a great story about The Swan in the book as well. Of course, now there's the Titan Games with Dwayne the Rock Johnson happening. There's so much more. You have to also read the story about the Grade Eighteen. Your dad, I'm just going to briefly talk to you about this. You taking yeah. him in a private plane to the 18 golf courses for that incredible show. You even got him a job on that shoot. <laughs> what a special experience to have that yeah. time with your dad. Just briefly, can you tell us what that was like?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, this, this happened during my time at Dick Clark Productions. I, I created this golf show called The Great 18, where we the four of the best players in the world play one hole at 18 of the greatest courses in America. And it certainly wasn't the biggest show that I had ever done, but probably one of the most special in a lot of ways. And what made it special is that my dad, who was an avid golfer and lover of golf, came on this incredible journey. And we went 10,000 miles in four days. And we played all, you know, we made all these stops with the greatest golf courses. And we had this dream foursome for golf fans. We had John Daly, Tom Kite, Davis Love, Fuzzy Zeller, who at the time were the best golfers in the world. And my dad was with me the entire time. And he was, he was so funny because his job was, he was the head marshal. So at every, we, we literally flew from one location to another. We would go to four or five different locations on a day on this private jet with the players, with the crew, mm. you know, landing in one city, going to the next city, you know, from the Island Green in Florida, all these famous signature finishing at the 18th hole of Pebble. And my dad, as the honorary marshal, there was he would corral all the volunteers, which would be basically the crowd control at these, at oh, these golf holes. And so you'd see my dad, you know, with the quiet police signs, he's in the background. <laughs> he has as much screen time as the players. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was amazing because it was such a great adventure. It came out of my passion for golf, but it was such a great blessing to have my, my dad there. And, you know, mm-hmm. as my dad got older, even when he was at, in, uh, I'm going to get emotional, even when he was at in, in the hospital at the end, at the end of his life, he'd be having a bad day. And we would talk about the grade 18. And I'd say, Dad, you remember, you and I walking up Pebble Beach together, arms around each other. And uh, there's a there's actually a picture in the, in the hardcover of the book uh, of me and my dad. And uh, with our, yeah, that scene of me and him walking up Pebble Beach together. Years later, and this is not in the book. Years later, I called my dad, and I said, "Dad, I you've never played Pebble, and you're a golfer. You got to play." He goes, "Yeah, no, I'll do it sometimes." I said, "No, no, no. This is what we're, we're going." And you and my mom played golf. And I said, "We're going. We're, we're going to play." And so we had this amazing weekend where we ended up going back and actually playing Pebble and staying at Pebble Beach, and and it was it was a great it was a great way to uh, remind us about the great memories that we had. And yeah, it is you know. I, listen, I. So much of my story and as you read the book, I can't help but talk about my parents because the role that they played in my life. And uh, you know, even though I lived in Los Angeles, you know, a few thousand miles away, I never missed Passover. I was always in back going back and forth to Montreal. Mm-hmm. I spoke mm-hmm. to my mom every day, multiple times a day, but always, always at eleven o'clock Eastern, eight o'clock Pacific, always. Yes. and uh that was our time Lovely. that was our time I, my dad would try and get on the phone and sometimes he did but it really was about the time for me and my mother um wow. and and uh yeah that was that was special it's funny because now i call my sisters at that time because i i oh. I, I have to call somebody you know yeah. so condition
1: i love that i love that well you know comedian in america's got talent howie mandel wrote, Arthur's story is the perfect read to inspire, entertain, and inform. That's on the front of the book. But I guess what I want to know is what is the main golden nugget that you'd like people to get out of your book, reach hard lessons and learn truths from a lifetime in television?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to the the whole power of reach that, that you only realize your full potential unless you reach beyond what you think you can do. And it's important to put yourself out there. And it's important not to be afraid to take chances and be vulnerable, because that's how we grow. And uh, and and when I say that, it doesn't mean reach can be defined differently to different people. You know, you have to find the reaches in your life. But you know, if it's something that you want to do, don't overanalyze it. Just go for it. Mm-hmm. It's what I when I talk to young students and when I lecture, you know, at film schools, I always talk about none of us know exactly what we want to do. We can't. So just take your best guess. Just take action. Yeah, it's really because because yeah. if you wait too long, time will pass, and you won't end up doing anything. And you might as well get started and make mistakes and even learn what you don't want to do. But at least you're progressing. At least you're moving forward, as opposed to staying in neutral.
1: What do you think drives you so relentlessly? Just briefly, because it's something that pervades everything you do. But what's behind that that incredible drive?
0: I feel like. um, uh, like it goes back to gratitude to me, and that I feel like I have been blessed with this life, and blessed to grow up, kind of privileged with great parents in that sense. And I feel like I need to make the most of my time. And uh, mm-hmm. I have this, I have this saying, which drives people crazy. I say impatient people get there faster. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm impatient I, because really. I believe time is is such a valuable commodity that I never want to waste it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just such a great ride, and even if even if it's uh, it has its bumps along the way, it's still exciting. And listen, I don't want to like you know mislead anybody because I've had my share of disappointments. I've had my share of things that didn't go my way, and it's not it's not a smooth ride to the top. It's a bumpy ride and yeah. filled with angst and disappointment. But that's how you appreciate the good times too, right? So absolutely, I, I um, yeah, I just I just. I love I love movement. I love movements. I get excited about new things, and and that's and that's why going back to having my own company, it's a gr- it's a great playground for me to to play because you know we do a lot of things that we're we're passionate about, and uh, you know I just worked with the NFL on reimagining their Pro Bowl games, this thing that they do uh, prior to the Super Bowl. It's just so much fun, such a passion project. Just so much fun to do that. But yet again, I, we're also doing this feature documentary on this adventure are completely different things. And mm-hmm. I love both of them. I'm excited mm-hmm. about both. So as long as we're making, as long as we're creating, as long as we're putting something out to the world to enjoy, to feel, that's good for me. That's that's all I want.
1: What is bliss for Arthur Smith?
0: Well, it's my family. You know, it really is. Because I do all of it. You know, it's like I read something I read something the other day, so it's not mine, but it kind of it kind of registered with me. And it was said by Scott Galloway. Scott Galloway, in his book, uh, The Algebra of Happiness, said something along the lines of like, all of his accomplishments, until he is sharing it with the people that he loves are in pencil. <laughs> and as soon as he starts sharing it with the people that he loves, they, it, becomes, it goes to pen, it becomes permanent. And, and it kind of like, all of this, everything that I do, it comes back to my family. And um, if my family's not watching or my family's not into it, or my family's not benefiting from it uh, indirectly or directly, yes, of course I do this for me. It is my career, but it wouldn't be anything without them. It would mean Mm. nothing without them.
1: Wow, that's lovely. Thank you, Arthur. This has really been an honor to have you here. Just an absolute delight to spend this hour sitting down with you.
0: Thanks so much, Judy. It's been been fun and and kind of emotional as I've gone through it. (laughs)
1: I'm going to ask you this because I want people to get the book. What is the best way for people to get the book reach and to connect with you on social media?
0: Uh, well, reach is um, available wherever books are sold. <laughs> so in Canada, yeah, on Indigo or Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org, a bunch of places. If you want an autograph copy or a signed copy, I should say, autograph sounds so Hollywood. If you want to sign a, signed copy, if you want a signed copy of the book, um, there's, a, there's a bookstore in LA called Diesel Bookstore, which is a bookstore right near me. And so I just go in there and I sign it and I'll, uh, I can send a special message or whatever you'd like. And uh, yeah, Diesel Bookstore in, in, uh, in Brentwood, which is in Los Angeles, you go in that and you, you know I'll, I'll send you a signed, cop, uh, signed copy. Or they'll send you a signed copy. I'll sign it, they'll send you. Okay, yeah, and uh, yeah, so that's, it's, yeah, it's available pretty much everywhere. It, the book is out officially on June 6th, but you can pre-order it now. And uh, I, hope, I hope people enjoy it. I, I, I hope they're entertained and inspired at the same time.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Arthur, for being on the show today. Great to have you here. Each week we spotlight a fabulous person like Arthur Smith who is living their bliss. So if you're anyone who is found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at FIB at findingyourbliss.com and of course you can always follow us at the Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. And everyone, you can also find Arthur on Instagram at Arthur underscore Smith 11 and on his website A Smith Co.com. I would like to thank our wonderful guest Arthur Smith for being on the show today. Also a big thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, Naira Mani, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanusiello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Lee Brack reminding you all to reach and take one step closer to finding your bliss.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.